0: Our topic today is sin, and specifically what are known as the seven deadly sins, pride, lust, anger, gluttony, avarice, envy, sloth, and the way in which the notion of such serious sins uh, has been woven into so much of, of, of Western civilization and been... Interpreted and and uh, and and dealt with in various ways uh, over over the generations. This is very thoughtfully explored in a most intriguing new book called "The Seven Deadly Sins: How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Age." The author of the book is Dr. David Solomon, who uh, is the director of undergraduate research uh, at Christopher Newport University, and uh, he has done an amazing job of exploring uh what really amounts to a sprawling topic and uh, i appreciate that the book is as personal as it is and uh and again very thoughtfully crafted And gives us uh, quite a lot to to talk about uh, professor solomon we welcome you to the morning show thanks very much Greg. great to be here uh i wish you would share with our listeners uh something you say in the preface of the book about how uh a moment from the famous Cecil B. DeMille film, *The Ten Commandments*, <laughs> made quite a an, an impression upon you. I think you were uh, uh, a young person at the time that you first saw that. And I uh, was. E- ex- explain the moment in the film that that, in a sense, kind of left a bad taste in your mouth.
1: Well, I, I I grew up a, a Jew. I was raised a Jew in the Bronx, New York. Um, was Orthodox, uh, not Orthodox, but it was, uh, Bar Mitzvahed in an Orthodox synagogue. And uh, was really intrigued by the film The Ten Commandments when I was a kid. Um, they had just begun showing it on television uh, just about every Easter Passover season. And um, I was always taken with the story of Moses as it was in the Bible. And... Um, there was a point at which uh, in the film when when Moses goes up to, to see God and then comes down from that encounter with the divinity that I really was intrigued by the change that would occur in a human being in that kind of a, of an encounter. Um, I was so taken with the film, as I relate in the preface, that when it was uh, being shown on the big screen in the Bronx, I dragged my father to go see it only to find out when we arrived at the theater that it was dubbed in Spanish. Uh, but it didn't really matter because I knew the whole thing by heart.
0: <laughs> and uh, so it, this is one of the first times that you began kind of thinking about the, the, the whole notion of of sin and, and, and how such a concept came about and how we need to kind of think about it.
1: Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, that that... It, it, and in conjunction with the years that I spent going to Hebrew school, preparing to be Bar mitzvah and encountering the various uh, men at an Orthodox synagogue, all men, uh, who were really expressing their own devotion and devoutness on a daily basis. And I became really enthralled with the idea of good and evil. Um, uh, Rabbi Kushner's book had just come out called When Good Things Happen to Bad People, and uh, very interested in in what that means and, and how it is that we deal with good and evil in our world, which then, of course, leads into a discussion of, of sin and doing right and wrong.
0: Right. I appreciate that uh, you very soon thereafter fold into your book uh, an account of of some of your first wrestling with the notion of sin, Uh, as a young boy and you tell such an interesting story about you and some of your, your classmates in, uh, in school, uh, being taken to a baseball game. And this is such an interesting example of how the notion of sin and in particular, very specific sins, uh, sort of leave the realm of the theoretical of something that you read on in a book or on a blackboard and begin to impact one's daily life. Uh, uh, Tell our listeners about this. Sure.
1: I I, I grew up not far from Yankee Stadium, uh, and when I was in Hebrew school, I think it was my first year in Hebrew school, so I must have been about eight or nine years old, our Hebrew school teacher, who I believe was a young woman who had just come back from Israel, had spent some time on a kibbutz and had come back to teach this group of unruly eight- and nine-year-old boys Hebrew to prepare them for their bar mitzvah, she had decided that uh, in the springtime we would all take a trip down to go see a Yankee game. So we piled into the subway and and went down to Yankee Stadium, and I recall quite vividly sitting in the bleachers in Yankee Stadium, all of us sitting there with our yarmulkes on, even though most of us were not being raised Orthodox, and she would not let us buy the hot dogs because at that time the Yankees hadn't switched yet to kosher hot dogs. The mm. hot dogs were not kosher, and somehow, I, for reasons that we weren't really clear about, that was forbidden by our religious belief, and we weren't allowed to eat them. So we sat through a Yankee game and without a hot dog, which itself seems like a sin.
0: <laughs> right. A few pages later, you mention what would we'd say is 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 a more serious encounter that you had with a a very old man maybe 80 years yeah. old and and this in a sense was a, a much had a much more vivid impact on you in terms of trying to come to grips with you know, what is this notion of sin and and why are we called to do certain things that uh at a glance might not necessarily make sense or might not necessarily uh command the kind of devotion that this elderly man was giving it uh giving to it uh explain to our listeners this really poignant scene
1: well I, I i would go to hebrew school every day after public school um from about three thirty until sundown and uh each day before we left at the end of the day the uh men were coming in for evening prayers And there was one man in particular um, to whom you refer, and I talk about this in the book in in detail. Um, As I say, he must have been about probably 80 years old, and he was a hunchback. Um, I didn't know him. Um, I don't know his name to this day. I don't know that I ever even said anything to him. Um, But in the Jewish religion, there is a a practice when one enters a home of uh, kissing a mezuzah, which is a small um, icon which is posted on the doorframe. Uh, it has a scroll in it with some some text from the Old Testament in it, and it is posted on the it is nailed to the doorframe about three quarters of the way up the doorframe. And this uh, man who would come in every day would stand in the doorframe and spend perhaps 20 minutes. Um, reaching his hand up the frame of the door, little by little, until he could reach the mezuzah so that he could touch it and kiss it with his with his uh, with his lips to his hand, to his fingers. Um, I was just taken by this and seeing this every day that this man would go through this uh, for, as I say, maybe twenty minutes in order to complete this ritual, which was obviously integral to his own belief system. Um, and I, I took that away from me as, a, as an example, as an early example in my life of someone who was particularly devout um, and particularly interested in following the rituals of his beliefs.
0: You go on to say that this book that you have written, uh, The Seven Deadly Sins, is at least in part A means for you to try to square that kind of life of devotion uh, to a very strict code of right and wrong with the world we live in now, generally speaking, a much more secularized world, although not entirely. There are certainly (laughs) ways in which uh, religious fervor is still very present and often in some destructive ways. but, But nevertheless, of course... This is a very different world now, and in particular, we live in a very different culture now than was in place then. And so your book is a means, in a sense, I suppose, to try to reconcile those two very different worlds or come to understand how they can both be true. Uh, Explain the the function that this book has served for you.
1: Yeah, well, as I was growing up, as I say... um, i was so interested in the, the the rituals and the religious doctrine of judaism that many of the adults in in my circle believed i would be a rabbi one day uh, and then what happened was uh... to make a very long story short when i was thirteen my grandmother died right after my bar mitzvah and that affected me quite greatly i went on to begin college at fordham university a, a catholic jesuit school Um, sat in a Foundations of Christian Theology course in freshman year, I think I was the only non-Catholic in the room, and really having absolutely no idea what was being discussed and what they were talking about. For example, the, the, the concept of the Trinity was just completely foreign to me. I had no reference point for it whatsoever. And as I went along in my own intellectual development and my own studies, I really came to realize that there is a a very clear difference between spirituality and religion. And the book is an attempt to kind of reconcile what it means to sin and what sin means in the contemporary world in the context not necessarily of religion, but of spirituality. Hmm. So I sort of move away from really talking about strict adherence to religious codes and in spe- instead really approaching issues related to spirituality as they affect us on, on the level of human being.
0: We're speaking with Dr. David Solomon about his uh, new book, The Seven Deadly Sins, How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Age. So what you uh, say is that by the time we get to the late 20th century, uh, the old notion of sin became cloudy at best and muddied, at worst. Explain the most significant ways in which uh, this has come to be true.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the contrast is with the Middle Ages, of course. Um, in the Middle Ages, sin was black and white. It was quite clear what was wrong and what was right, as far as moral behavior was concerned. This was dictated by an authority. Um, in most cases, in the in Western Europe, the, the Catholic Church. As time progressed and history progressed and and we go through the the reformation and the renaissance and then come into the modern world and the age of science that notion that sin is clear cut black and white really becomes a lot more gray uh and there are many more gray areas today when we talk about moral behavior it is no longer clearly a black and white issue And as a a simple example of that, if we think about the kinds of defenses that are used in our criminal justice system, in our court system, for various crimes, um, one of the things that I touch on in the book a little bit is the question of a crime of passion, that sometimes it would be excusable in our culture as far as our legal system is concerned to say that the crime that you had committed was committed either in a moment of passion or in a moment of insanity for for criminal uh, insanity cases. And oftentimes what that has done is it has really shaken us of our notions of responsibility for our own behavior. Hmm. Um, It allows us to be a lot more uh, uh, blame-prone and shifting that blame onto others or other behavior. It's one of the dangerous things with the idea that... And I, At one point when I was working on the book, I became interested in the idea that maybe sin is just evolutionary. It's just part of who we are as human beings. And I spent a lot of time looking at, at the writings of Charles Darwin, who interestingly in his notebooks wrote quite a bit about spiritual issues and religious issues, and the problem with arguing that is that it essentially lets us have an excuse, and I can say that it's not my fault; I'm wired that way, that's my biology and Again, that really gets us into a dangerous area of of shunning of responsibility for our own behavior, which we we see on an almost daily basis in our in our news cycle um in the chapter on gluttony, I recall. A couple of cases a few years ago where uh, McDonald's was sued uh, by two, two by the parents of two young women who insisted that McDonald's made the girls fat. Uh, the girls had their own responsibility to eat the the parent took them there, uh, but instead we want to to blame others for our own misfortunes
0: and our own errors hmm. yeah, you tell us that one way that one could probably split nearly down the middle. Current society is between blame takers and blame shifters. Yeah. And that often, for a lot of us, a, a big part of who we are and the way we relate to the world and to each other circles around this notion of blame and whether like. we are capable of accepting the blame for something that for which the blame yeah. belongs to us versus others who are simply incapable of that. And I suppose and the
1: concept—the are... concept begins in the Genesis text with the fall of Adam and Eve, um, one of the foundational texts of, of Western culture. When when Adam and Eve both eat of the, the the forbidden fruit, God comes down first to Adam and says, "What did you do?" And instead of saying, "I I ate and I knew I wasn't supposed to eat, but I ate anyway," instead of that, in the Genesis text, he says, "That woman that you gave me, she brought me the fruit, and I ate." Um, He goes to Eve, and he says, what did you do? She says, the serpent made me eat. So it is this unwillingness to accept responsibility for our own behavior, which in some ways is really a, a plague of our culture and has only become magnified, I think,
0: Today, right. So Adam and Eve would be the first two uh, yes. blame shifters. Uh, the the first two of of of, of many. Uh, Absolutely, it's, it, it's interesting. However, you you point out something that I think is 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 worth acknowledging. And and at this point in the book, you you cite a, a verse from Paul's letter to the Romans that will be familiar to to many listening to us. You write, This conundrum of humanity's responsibility for their actions connects directly to the question of sin. If, as Romans 6.20 has it, humans are all slaves to to sin, then what of responsibility? Slaves have no rights and little control over their behavior and are thus absolved of responsibility. Um, That is... Something probably even a lot of us who know this verse well don 't maybe stop to think about or take to uh, that final conclusion
1: yeah uh, so much of this topic has surrounds um, questions of authority and of course of punishment, and who's responsible for for punishment and and where we where we place the authority, and where we look to for authority. And the idea in in Paul's text is that if we are slaves to sin, then we aren't responsible for that behavior, because as I, as I note what you just read, slaves don't have any rights, and we, we, we don't have responsibility for what we do if we are slaves. We rely on the, on, on the owner, on the master.
0: I want to also make sure that I get a chance to to ask you about something that you say arises from this wrestling with the notion of sin you write, I suggest that one of humanity's most difficult balancing acts concerns morality and finding the sweet spot between doing right for self, others and the world and being focused on one's own welfare and happiness without falling in, into, uh, into narcissism uh, explain more about why this is such such a difficult balancing act, as far as you're concerned. Well, it, it,
1: it, is, it is something which comes out of um, much of the, the, the religious literature of the Middle Ages, and we also see it a great deal in Eastern spirituality, which is that the, the way to deal with this is to find what they call the middle way, to find that balance between both sides. And that is extraordinarily difficult. Um, it reminds me of the the, the text from the Upanishads, the Hindu text, that the, the line between love and hate is very difficult, it's very thin and very narrow and difficult to navigate, and the text says it's like a razor's edge. Uh, it is a very difficult line to walk, um, but it is, I think, probably more important to the future of us as human beings, to the future of humanity, today than it ever has been, if you take into account the kinds of behaviors that we're dealing with in our popular world at the moment, in our, in our popular culture and, and government, um, issues related to the climate, for example, and whether or not we should be responsible for what's happening, uh, finding that middle way is, is very, very important. Uh, swinging the pendulum to one end or the other is, is a dangerous thing.
0: Do you have time for a couple of more questions? Sure. Let me reintroduce you. I'm speaking with Dr. David Solomon, and we are talking about his very intriguing book called The Seven Deadly Sins, How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Age. Uh, You tell us that uh, there is a 4th century monk uh, who is responsible for, uh, in a sense, first creating kind of a codification of sin. And it's just so intriguing to think of somebody so tremendously significant that most of us have never heard of, or at least I never have. <laughs> and I'm just <laughs> suspecting that most people do not know this name at all. Probably uh, t-
1: not. You're you're speaking of Evagrius Ponticus. Right. So um, who was a, a Greek monk uh who first laid out a list of of sins uh... for his fellow monks in the monastic community um, and for him uh... the most severe of the sins was actually one that we don't often think about today which is sloth. uh... he was concerned that his fellow monks would become lazy and the reason why that was so dangerous to him was because it would lead it would be a gateway if you will to other sins particularly he was concerned that if one became lazy you would begin to not pray, not, con- not continue to fulfill your duties at the monastery, not commit to the monastic hours the way that one needed to. Um, it's interesting that, of course, in contemporary life we don't think about this very much as a sin. Uh, I think I opened that chapter on, on sloth by relating a story about my father, who I remember in the, I think it was the late 1960s, was pulled over on the New York State Thruway for driving too slowly. And I always wondered, how could that possibly be a bad thing? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But sloth today has really kind of transformed into more a sense of listlessness than laziness. It's uh, what my students would call having a case of the blahs. Uh, For many people, it often bridges over into discussions about melancholy and depression. Uh, Evagrius called sloth the noonday demon, taking the, the phrase from the New Testament. Uh, and in fact, a couple of years ago, Andrew Solomon wrote quite a good book about depression and melancholy that he called the noonday demon. It's called the noonday demon mm. because the idea is that after lunch, of course, you we, we all sort of have a, a carb high and you want to take a nap. Um, and it, you're given to a kind of laziness in that mid-afternoon when we fall into
0: that little slump. Mm. He actually listed eight sins. He did. Uh, Explain why there are eight rather than the seven deadly sins with which we are so familiar. And, uh, I mean, otherwise, is it those seven deadly sins plus one that is not part of the more famous list?
1: Yeah, well, and and the the number seven and settling on the seven, which was settled by, really settled settled by Gregory the Great in the uh, 4th and 5th century— um, is, is rather arbitrary. It's just what we sort of came to agree on. But yes, Vigrius had eight, and he doesn't even call them uh, sins per se. Um, he has a different phrase for them, uh, the, the, the name of which escapes me at the moment. Um, and he talks a great deal about um, being concerned with, he calls them eight thoughts. Um, and for him, they are gluttony, fornication, avarice, anger, sadness, acedia, which becomes sloth, vainglory, and pride. And so essentially what happened was sadness and acedia became combined in Gregory's
0: writings into the idea of sloth. Hmm. Interesting how, uh, according to at least one modern scholar studying uh, Evagrius, uh, The reasoning behind this codification of sin was, uh, in this scholar's words, to make the human being capable of loving again and thereby capable of God. It's so interesting to think about that because, of course, uh, I think it's far more common when one thinks about a list of sins uh, to not think about it as existing for that kind of a reason at all, mm. we tend to think about uh, the reason we have such rules uh, f- for 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 many other reasons, but not to make us capable of loving again.
1: It, yeah, well, and and I would, and I I think what I try to do eventually in the book is to is to reframe that for us today, and talk not just about loving God, which is what Evagrius would have been interested in, what Gregory the Great would have been focused on, but instead about loving and appreciating each other. Uh, one of the things that I really uh, try to make a case for in the book is the fact that modern technology is really uh, doing us an injustice. It is getting in between us as human beings. It's, it's hurting our humanity. And so many of the sins and the the modern examples that I give for them in the book relate to things related to technology. For example, envy. Uh, I talk quite a bit about envy as it relates to social media, mm-hmm. Facebook, Instagram, that now we have this, this phenomenon that psychologists have where they call it comparison syndrome, where people who are on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all the rest spend so much time comparing their own lives and their own selves to the people that they see on social media, and envying them. Um, and ha- what, a, what a detrimental thing that is to us as, as individuals, uh, never mind the fact that what we're seeing on social media is artificial to begin with, and no one's life is as good as it is presented on Facebook. Um, but it, it, it is interesting that so much of sin today is about what it does to us as human beings, and does to each other as human beings. So one of the things that, that, that is interesting to talk about is how sin affects us and how it affects others. Uh, the, the the real concern in the Middle Ages was how it affects one's relationship with God. Um, in a more secular context today, I think it's more about how it affects our relationship with others and with our ourselves.
0: Right, and the fact that to uh, live a, a loving life— uh, is is really not fully possible if if these particular sins are kind of in the in the mix of the choices we make on a on a, on a daily life i mean Absolutely. these these seven deadly sins are seven things that get in the way of they're obstacles right definitely are. they and, definitely and obstac- are and and obstacles and as you just touched on they're obstacles uh, in uh, in the way in terms of us loving others and allowing ourselves to be loved. Uh, they they just mess things up. Definitely,
1: and and it it it's interesting because a lot of what I what I refer to in the book I use a lot of Carl Jung's psychological ideas because so much of Carl Jung's work is about a process that he calls individuation in which we discover who our true selves are, and so much of what we're talking about in the contemporary discussions of sin. Are things that get in the way of us doing that, making that self-discovery, continuing on that kind of journey. Uh, we're so locked into our cell phones and the data and sensory overload of everyday life that there's very little room anymore for self-reflection, for a pause to actually think and reflect and consider what's going on and what's going on within ourselves and sin is one of the things that really gets in the way there. Hmm.
0: You tell us that when we look at the contemporary world that there are that there that we see at every hand what some call moral bankruptcy. And apparently that is a turn of phrase that has been around uh for a while. And you write moral bankruptcy in the contemporary world presents in two forms. Those who take advantage of others in an immoral fashion and those whose actions are morally questionable. Could you kind of yeah. spell that out for us in a little more detail about sure. the way in which that tends to play out in our modern world, in our modern life?
1: Yeah, I, I and, and I think one of the things that we've got to do is get away from the idea of moral bankruptcy as, you know, we hear the word bankruptcy and we immediately think about money. But we're thinking about bankruptcy as in just having no morals, or be conducting immoral behavior that affects another person. And one of the examples I believe that I use in the book is what has happened in Puerto Rico after the hurricane Uh, and the fact that Puerto Rico, which is part of the United States of America, uh, has actually uh, basically been turned away by the U.S. government in order to support them and, and support their rebuilding. Uh, The president, President Trump, had committed a very, very small percentage of the money that was requested. Uh, All this time after the hurricane, the island is still largely decimated and and is having a a tremendous uh, amount of of trouble rebuilding. And I see that as as a sense of moral bankruptcy, as a government being morally bankrupt, so uh, I think sins can be committed on many levels. They can be committed on a personal level, on a one-to-one level, but they can also be con- can, uh, can be committed on a on a much larger level at the level of a culture or a government itself. Hmm.
0: Your book goes through each of the seven deadly sins and I think you're quite right when you say most of us can toss off the phrase seven deadly yeah. sins but not be able to name those seven deadly sins, right. which says something right there. But uh, again, to reiterate them, pride, lust, anger, gluttony, avarice, envy, sloth. Explain to our listeners the order in which we explore these. I mean, the order in which you explore these seven yeah. deadly sins. It is not by chance.
1: Well, no. I mean, usually um, in, in just about every schema of of sin pride comes first. Um, In fact, in in the Middle Ages it was often depicted um, in in a visual as a tree of vices, and pride was at the root of it, with Adam and Eve committing the first sin, which was the sin of pride. The Genesis text tells us that they wanted to be like God, and pride is about wanting to be better than you really are, or bigger than you really are. And so, pride is really where, where we start. Um, I moved on in the text, then going in in a rather um, hodgepodgey order, to be honest. Um, I moved on to them as they seemed important to me in our culture. Uh, Pride seemed to be the most significant one still, um, and more so in the sense of narcissism. Uh, There was a, a terrific study that was published in the 1980s by Christopher Lash, the sociologist, called The Culture of Narcissism. And he has since died and I, I I often wonder what he would think about our world today, where people are obsessed with their own image. Um, I went to a ball game a couple of weeks ago and was amazed at the people sitting in the stands with their cell phones taking selfies throughout the entire game. They never watched the game uh, they were just completely obsessed with their own image. Uh, I also found it intriguing that between after a after a play is 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 uh is replayed on t v We see it at home. Well, they replay the plays now in the ballpark on the big screen, and I was really taken by the fact that most of the players on the field turn around to watch themselves on the big screen uh, and watch the replay. Now I know some of that may be in order to, to, to better hone their skills so they can see what happened. But sitting there in the stands, as I was, having just written this book, it just struck me as being a, a rather
0: narcissistic behavior right and it, and at one uh. point in this chapter, you also say, uh for millennials who have been consistently coached about self esteem, mm-hmm. pride is a positive. one can never have too much pride <laughs> so right. so it, yeah it, I mean I, I wrestle with this myself. I have a sixteen year old daughter and
1: uh, you know, I, When I find myself saying, well, you really need to be proud of, your, of yourself, proud of what you did, and I think, well, wait a minute, <laughs> is that a good thing? Um, because it has created for uh, an entire generation what has been termed the, the trophy generation of students who are coming through schools and then through college and expecting a sticker <laughs> for every good thing that they do.
0: Right, and you pose in this quest in this chapter about pride, I think what is a really intriguing question, which is we have to wonder if it is possible to be a self without pride, yeah, uh, how do we untie the the whole notion of pride without a solid sense of self of self worth of 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 who we are, and uh that that's, that's the heart of the question, probably, when it comes it to is. the sin of pride.
1: It, it definitely is, and I, I think one of the, the problems that people run into is the pride comes before the exploration of self, whereas it really needs to work the other way around. One needs to have a better understanding of who they are as a self, who I am as a human being, before then I can start to look outside and look at how the world interacts with me. Um, it, it it it's again part of the Jungian journey and part of the, the journey of human beings that we discover who we are, and if we ignore that, nothing good can come from ignoring that. Mm. Um, and we we tend to do that too often today. Again, partially due
0: to the to the the incredibly high speed at which modern life occurs. Right. You also point out something that I think is, speaks very directly to this when you say that pride itself is not inherently evil. It is only evil, only a sin in excess. And so that means then, in in a sense, the riddle for us is uh, how much pride is too much pride or when right. when is pride... Excessive? Is there a clean line in the sand? And I suspect I, I don't the answer is.
1: No. Yeah, I don't think there's a clean line in the sand. I think it's a very individual um, choice. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier with finding the middle way. But I think the middle way is quite different for every individual person. There isn't a manual um, that you can go by, uh, and too often, um, especially today, it seems people want a manual. They want the answer. They want the easy fix. They want the, the pill that's going to cure them. And it's, it's not easy. Uh, life is difficult. Um, the journey is difficult. And um, the sooner that, that people understand that, the better off that they will be. I mean, I often tell my students who are so obsessed with getting to graduation so that they can go out and, and get a job that it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Uh, you will get there. Uh, but you need to be conscious of the fact that it's a process. Life is a process. And discovering where that middle way is and where that line is for us as individuals is part of that process.
0: So why does it, in your mind, make sense for you to start your book with pride and probably for all of us in, if we uh, choose to reflect seriously on the seven deadly sins to begin with pride in what way is pride uh, ha- why in what ways does pride have kind of a place of primacy
1: well i think because it is probably of of all of the sins the one that is most closely related with a sense of self and because my focus is is so so uh so strongly on discovery of self that seems like a good place to begin Uh, A sense of, well, what does it mean to be proud? What does it mean to be narcissistic? What does it mean to be concerned only with self? And how does that then set us up in relation to other people? Because then the other sins that follow from that, lust, anger, gluttony, avarice, envy, and sloth, are much more about how we relate to others than they are about just relating to ourselves. Pride is the one that really is the focus on us. Right.
0: And I should say that this chapter, like the others, but it's maybe particularly true in this chapter, that when you explore kind of the history of the notion of self, you do so uh, in really meticulous fashion. I mean, you really walk us through the the evolution of this notion and about the various ways in which various writers uh, through the millennia have 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 written about this and uh, it's quite a journey isn't it
1: it is it is and it and it it is really important for us to have a good understanding of where this came from and what others have already gone through um for example i mean one of the 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 best first places to start for me if someone was going to ask for a place to begin would be reading saint augustine's confessions uh, essentially the first autobiography that we have of any individual which is essentially a book about Augustine's journey to discovery of self. Um, and then from that really grows so much of the writing through the Middle Ages and then into the modern world related to self, uh, culminating probably in, in the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor's uh, tremendous book, both in, in size and in content, called Sources of Self, uh, which came out probably about 20 or 25 years ago. Mm.
0: So explain then in brief, we're just about out of time, but explain sure. the journey through the rest of these seven deadly sins. And and uh, I think at one point in the interview you called it kind of a hodgepodge order, but but I don't think that's yeah. the whole picture. I mean, I think there really is a sense of of, of reason uh, in terms mm. of how we progress through these sins in this particular order.
1: Mm, okay. Yeah, so we've got pride is the first one we already talked about. Uh, Lust comes next, which is essentially excessive desire, Uh, and and there has to be a a clear discussion about the distinction between love and lust. Um, The fact that desire in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, it is when we get into an excess of desire that it becomes dangerous. Uh, The next chapter on anger, Uh, I spend a good deal of time in that chapter looking at anger in the Old Testament to find examples or exemplars for behavior. And it becomes problematic because there aren't a lot of good ones. Um, Probably the most angry character in the Old Testament is God. Uh, If you don't do what God says to do, he will smite you down, and he does. Um, The punishment is very clear. There's a a, a real sense of of a disciplinary parent there. Uh, so the issues related to anger in the modern world are quite interesting, because now we send people for anger management classes, we talk about folks having road rage, uh, and so much of that to me is, is a, a factor in, it, or is, a, is a, uh, an issue in the fact that we have too many people. We live too close together, we don't have enough space, we don't have enough space for us to think and to do that kind of reflection that we were talking about earlier. Uh, the next sin is gluttony, which traditionally was di- dealt with just food and drink. Um, I kind of move beyond that, although I do talk about food and drink in the chapter. But I move on to talk about other types of gluttony because gluttony is really putting anything into your body or mind. Mm. So the the, the the data overload that we have, binge watching television, is a form of gluttony, and exploring those different kinds of ideas. Um the the next chapter is an avarice. Avarice is greed. And we have an entire generation of people now, at least one generation, who grew up on the nineteen eighties film Wall Street, in which Gordon Gecko professes greed is good. Uh and we have seen how greed is not good. Uh in the last couple of decades with the various financial crises, the collapse in two thousand eight, and of course the ongoing debate and discussion amongst the 1% and the 99% and related to questions of money and greed. Hmm. Uh, Envy, as I mentioned, is the next one, and I relate that to social media, as we talked about. And then comes sloth, which is... uh, I left for the last chapter because I guess I must have been lazy (laughs) and and finally got to it and talked about, as it relates to us in the modern world, as being more that sense of, of melancholy and listlessness, which so many of us struggle with on a daily basis. Right.
0: To finish, you tell us that we are really in what you call a defining moment. Uh, We sit at a precipice, at the top of the slippery slope. And you you tell us that once humanity has begun that descent, that descent down that so-called slippery slope... It will be extraordinarily difficult to regain its footing uh, What does humanity need to do at this critical moment in its history, particularly as it relates to this notion of sin?
1: One of the things that i well there there are two there are two things that i can that I can give you for answers to that, and one is. We need to move away from our obsession with data, and um, I mean that in all of its all of its forms. I'm not saying that we should throw away our phones. Um, I'm not I'm not endorsing being a luddite. I'm not a luddite, um, but I am endorsing moderation and consideration of an over reliance on data. I received a robocall last night, and when I answered it. Uh, it was my, my health care provider. It was a, a taped message. I'd gone to the doctor two days ago, and it was asking me to complete a survey about my doctor. I, 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 I found that offensive, and I hung up um, because it, 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 it's it's not the same thing as a survey about whether or not my, my I'm happy with my automobile. Um, we're talking about human beings here. And doing data analysis on human behavior, I've always found to be a rather dangerous idea. Um, The second part of it is, if I would add one sin to the list and, and create an eighth sin for us today, I think it would be the sin of ignorance. We need to really focus on reinventing ourselves as thoughtful human beings, moving away from ignoring, which is the root of the word ignorance, what we are hearing from folks who quite obviously know what they're talking about. And I'm thinking about scientists and the like and discounting credible, actual um, scientific reporting. Uh, And I'm thinking most recently about the the outbreak of measles as a result of the anti-vax movement. Uh, It's really rather startling if you examine that movement, to see how it has progressed over the last 25 years and why it has progressed the way that it has. And it, it, it's going to be difficult to turn back and to, to turn the tide there, but we have to. It, it, it is just integral to our, to our future, I think. And uh, if we don't do that, as I say, it, it's going to be very difficult to regain a foothold once we start down that slope.
0: I like the quote that you have from a philosophy professor Michael Patrick Lynch, who wrote, "Acceptance without reflection is dangerous." And yeah, so the notion I, 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 that, it's a great quote. Yeah, that we we cannot continue to accept the the latest innovation, the 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 latest sign of progress, without some serious reflection on what it means for us uh, as individuals and for all of us uh, collectively. Uh, as, as the human race. Well, there is so much to think about in your uh, fascinating book, and again, it's titled The Seven Deadly Sins, How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Age, published by Prager, the author, uh, Dr. David Solomon. Dr. Solomon, thank you so much for writing Thanks such so an much. impressive book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. Thanks very much. It
1: was a pleasure to join you.